All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But God demonstrates his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one, no one comes to the Father except by me. To Martha he said, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he were dead, yet shall he live. And whosoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? Before we begin our study this morning, let's take a few moments to go to the Lord in prayer and ask his guidance and direction on our study today. Let's pray. Our fathers, we come together this morning to study your word. We realize that it is through your word that you sanctify us. Sanctification is the process of our spiritual growth. As we are matured from faith to faith, as we are brought into conformity with the image of your Son, this is done through the teaching of your word, assimilating it into our soul through the ministry of God the Holy Spirit, and then living it out through application. Now, Father, we pray that as we study today, that you will enlighten our souls to the truth of your word, that we might be edified, strengthened, encouraged, and that we might be able to live a life that honors and glorifies you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Matthew chapter 20, verses 20 to 28. And today we're going to focus on this important doctrine called the doctrine of the baptism of the cup, the baptism of the cup. But let me begin with a little bit of review. Uh, We've had a couple of weeks off because last week was Resurrection Day. So let me remind you of the context. It's so important when we look at Scripture to make sure we understand context And as I've said so many times, the context is not just the immediate uh, literary context of the surrounding uh, verses, but also uh, broadening that out to where we understand how it fits within sort of the subsection of a a book or epistle, and then the section, and then uh, the epistle or the gospel or the book itself, and then how that fits within the structure of Scripture. And oftentimes, what we've discovered throughout church history, that passages that seem to teach one thing, when we explore the context a little more, we realize that it really isn't talking about what we think it's talking about. And this we have discovered to be true in a number of verses and passages as we've gone through this section of Matthew, which actually began back in Matthew chapter 18. And we need to just step back a minute and see that structure because it's important to understand what is going on here, as I pointed out in the last several lessons, because we're coming to the end of this structure. So these are the the bookends. And the bookends uh, help us to understand that everything between the beginning of this section and the end of this section relates to the themes that are set forth in these in these bookends. And that has to do with our position, our status, our roles and responsibilities in the future kingdom. And we see this brought out through the <clears throat> through the confusion and the error and the arrogance of the disciples who just haven't quite figured out what the issues in the spiritual life actually are. In Matthew chapter 18, verse 1, we see them raise a question, raise this issue that that comes out of a context where Jesus has taken three of the disciples and seemingly a position of privilege and honor to go with him up onto the Mount of Transfiguration 
where they saw him in his glory, and they also saw Moses and Elijah. And when they came down, the disciples, if you remember, were trying to cast a demon out, and they were just, they lacked faith, and that's what Jesus confronts them with. So obviously, it's becoming apparent to them there's some sort of distinction that's taking place within them, and they began to argue amongst themselves about who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And so they come to Jesus with this question in Matthew 18.1, and they say, who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And the reason I want to emphasize this, aside from the question itself, but they bring in this issue of the kingdom of heaven, and we've studied this in the Gospel of Matthew, that, that from the very first time this term is used in the Gospel of Matthew by John the Baptist, who is presenting the offer of the kingdom to to Israel, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, there's no redefinition of that term, kingdom. Uh, The New Testament doesn't start off and say, okay, we've got a new idea here in the kingdom. Uh, John is presenting the kingdom as prophesied, anticipated, and expected from the Old Testament passages, that this would be a literal geophysical kingdom that would be centered in Jerusalem with a uh, literal physical king, a descendant of David who would be ruling on the throne of David in Jerusalem. And this is going to be the Messiah, the messianic king that was anticipated and prophesied in the Old Testament. When John the Baptist ministry faded as Jesus comes to the forefront, Jesus has the same message. He doesn't change the terms. He says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And then when he sent his disciples out, he sent them only to the house of Judah and the house of Israel. And he said, this is the message. Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. At no point is there a redefinition of the concept of kingdom. Now, that's important to understand because within some some areas of Christianity, some denominations, uh, those who do not hold to a consistent literal interpretation of Scripture, the idea of the kingdom is transformed from a literal, physical Jewish kingdom to a kingdom that is spiritual. And you find this among many denominations from Roman Catholic theology to Lutheran theology to Calvinist Presbyterian theology that hold to what is called amillennialism. The A prefix means no. It's equivalent to the English UN. Uh, it comes out of Greek. And then some brilliant man in the sometime in the Middle Ages joined that with a Latin word, a Greek prefix with a Latin word. Who knew? And the Latin word is from the word milli, meaning a thousand. And so it was no millennium, no literal thousand-year reign of Christ. Uh, so this is a rejection of a historic doctrine that was believed in the early church called chiliasm from the, uh, Latin, uh, from the uh, Greek word for a thousand, where they believed, based on Revelation 20 and a number of other passages, that there was a literal physical kingdom on the earth that would last for a thousand years and would be ruled by Jesus Christ. But due to the advent of a non-literal, the advent of a spiritualizing or allegorical interpretation from the end of the second century on, many passages of Scripture became uh, de-literalized and became allegorized so that now we live in a form of the kingdom, we live in a spiritual kingdom, and this is uh, simultaneous with the present church age. And in amillennialism, the end of this church age is when Jesus comes back, and that's the end of history. You have also premillennialism. Pre-millennial, premillennialism believes in a literal uh, 1,000-year reign of Christ on the earth that will come at some time in the future and will be preceded. That's why it's called premillennialism. It will be preceded by the literal return of Jesus to the earth, which we refer to as the second coming or the second advent. He returns to the earth to establish this kingdom on the earth that Israel rejected at the first coming so that that kingdom was postponed. Now, just to confuse everybody, there are those in evangelicalism today that teach something called the already-not-yet view of the kingdom, that it's already here but not yet. And um, and that's just dialecticism that comes out of a 
modernist uh, human viewpoint perspective on on scripture it's totally postponed and there's no change and the reason i bring this up is that the the question they're asking in 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 Matthew 18.1, who's greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And so the, the disciples clearly understand the concept of the kingdom, that it is a future, literal, geopolitical uh, kingdom on the earth ruled by the Messiah. Jesus does not correct their understanding of the kingdom. He doesn't say, now, now you're, you're, you're thinking about this is all wrong. He doesn't correct it here. Neither will he correct it when uh, James and John and their mother come to him in chapter 20, verse 20, and say uh, that and request that the the two sons sit on the right and the left hand of Jesus when he comes in his kingdom. He doesn't correct their understanding of the kingdom then either. What he does in both places is he corrects their understanding of what it means to be great. In the kingdom, what it means to have status in the kingdom. And he's going to focus them on the fact that they are to be servants and not to be concerned about status. They're to be like little children. In the ancient world, little children had no status whatsoever. They were better not seen and not heard. And nobody paid attention to them. And that is the, I, that's the mentality that Jesus is saying should characterize disciples. And so it's that theme that of, of true humility and being a servant to one another, not seeking any kind of personal glorification or status that runs through this whole section and it will come to a conclusion in this passage uh, we are studying. Now, for those of you who are visitors, we've been studying this for three or four weeks, and I've been circling it because there's a lot of important things that are taught here, and so we've we've gone around it, and now we're centering on the the core teaching that is here. The lead-in is found in verses 17 through 19, focusing on what Jesus was going to do when he uh, went to the cross, identifying him as the Son of Man, and that brackets this section with the last two verses, which again returns to the focus of what Jesus will do on the cross, and again refers to him as the Son of Man. Both of those are bringing our attention to the fact that what Jesus is doing as the greater Son of David, as the promised Messiah, is not to come to seek self-glorification, but he is coming to serve through one of the most horrid deaths ever conceived in the history of mankind. Crucifixion was a horrible death of unimaginable torture and suffering that was devised in the ancient world, and it originally uh, began by just hanging somebody, tying up their arms and hanging them from a single post. It would dislocate the shoulders, and eventually uh, they would suffocate to death, die of of combination of several things, uh, suffocation as well as dehydration, as well as as a, a lack of any kind of nourishment and all of that would just stretch out for two or three days. By the time the Romans came along, they perfected it uh, with a cross beam called a, a patibulum, and they would put that on top of the center post. And in the case of Jesus, <clears throat> they nailed him to the cross after a severe beating that would have left him uh dehydrated, would have left him so weakened that he could probably barely walk. Uh, he was so so flayed by the Roman uh, flagrum that it would have just torn the flesh off his back, exposed his organs, and it just indicates that he must have been a physically powerful human being to have continued to withstand all of that that he went through. And he goes and he is hung on the cross And he goes through that in order to serve us. That's the focal point here is understanding that he's not doing this for personal glorification, which you would expect from a king, but he is doing this in order to serve his creatures and to provide salvation for them. 
that frames this little episode, and it really helps when you understand that to drive home the point of what Jesus is teaching them in this situation. So what we have seen from the beginning of chapter 19 is that Jesus has left Galilee, and he has traveled to the south, as indicated by the uh, blue line here. He's traveled to the south, come down through Perea, and he is probably near the Jordan River when this takes place. He's traveling with not only the disciples, but we see that that the, at least the mother of the sons of Zebedee are there, and probably others are traveling with them. It's not an enormous crowd, but it's certainly more than a dozen or two dozen uh, dozen people. And the question that comes up that is a focal point of this whole section is who is the greatest in the kingdom. And they're asking, well, who will sit in the seats of highest honor? See, what they're doing is they are like many of us, is that they approach the teaching of Scripture from the background of their own human viewpoint thinking, the thinking of their culture, the thinking that's been uh, bred into them through the influence of their peers, the influence of the, the leaders in their country. And rather than thinking in terms of what God has revealed. There's always this conflict for the believer between the thinking that is consistent with the world system, the thinking that is consistent with uh, the sin nature, and the thinking that God expects us to have that imitates and mirrors his kind of thinking. And the role of spiritual growth is to replace the thinking of the world that's in our souls with the thinking of God. That's Romans 12, 2. We are not to be conformed to the world, to the thinking of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And that takes place through the study of God's Word. And it doesn't just happen on Sunday mornings. We live in a world that that inculcates us with human viewpoint paganism day in and day out, and it gets worse and worse and worse. You hear it uh, at, at your work. You hear it uh, from your neighbors. You hear it in school. You hear it from your peers. But what we see here is that that we have to be transformed if we are going to be true disciples. Now, being a disciple isn't the same as being saved. There's only one condition for being saved, and that's believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved, trusting that he died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins. But once we are a new creature in Christ, once we are justified and once we are regenerated, then we have to grow. Discipleship is related to spiritual growth and spiritual advance. And there are many conditions that Jesus expresses for discipleship. But people get confused on these things, and they think that disciples are is the same as being saved, and then all of a sudden you end up getting kind of a confused gospel where you're saved by doing certain things. No, you're saved by faith alone, by trusting in Christ alone. But we grow through the study, the intake, the assimilation of God's Word, and then applying it under the ministry of God the Holy Spirit. So they're coming to this with this human viewpoint concept of leadership, probably not much different than the human viewpoint concept of leadership that is dominant in our culture. I'm not even sure what kind of viewpoint they have on leadership up in Washington, D.C., but I don't think it has anything, clo- it's anything close to what we have in the Scripture. Uh, they are there for, many of them are there for their own power, their own prestige, and accumulating whatever wealth they can get at the benefit of the taxpayer. But what we have in the scripture is the role of a leader is that he is to be a servant. He is to be focused upon uh, the needs of those he is leading and is to lead by virtue of humility, not in a manner that is self-serving. But the disciples haven't quite caught that yet, and they're still thinking in terms of uh, human viewpoint uh, ideas of leadership, and they want to know who's going to be great in the kingdom. Now, when Jesus comes to the end of this section, he talks about the essence of leadership. He says, whoever desires to be first among you, that is directly addressing this issue of who is going to be greatest or who's going to have the position of honor. Who's going to be greatest of you shall be your slave. 
And then he says, just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. The first word used in verse 27 is slave doulos, and the second word translated served is the verb diakoneo from the, from the word for, uh, the noun is related to the word deacon, someone who is a, a servant. Now this, as I pointed out two weeks ago, is directly related to the mission of Jesus as the second person of the Trinity who took on humanity and entered into human history. Philippians 2.7 says that he emptied himself by taking on the form of a bondservant, and that's the word doulos here on the right side. That's the same word that we have here in verse 27, to be a slave. So this is what Jesus does. And because Jesus is willing to humble himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the the most humiliating death ever, the death of a cross, this is why he will be exalted among every name in heaven and on earth and receive ultimate glorification. That is the result of him being the perfect servant and perfectly obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ, demonstrating that that humility. So what we see in Matthew chapter 20, verse 20, is another episode, not unlike that we saw in Matthew 18, but now James and John have enlisted their mother in order to uh, advance their cause with Jesus. The disciples all through this section have continued to argue amongst themselves as to who's going to be greatest. And so James and John come along, and we read in verse 20, Then the mother of Zebedee's sons, and we know from comparing other scriptures that this is uh, Salome. She is uh, also related to, to Mary. She is Mary's aunt, so that means that James and John are first cousins, and this is sort of a family affair in among the disciples. And they think because they're closely related to Jesus that they should be uh, on each side of the throne. So they've encouraged their mother to do this. Now, there's a couple of things we ought to observe when we look at this, is that there are some distinctions between the account in Matthew and the account in Mark. There's no parallel account uh, in either Luke or John. We just have these two parallel accounts in Matthew and Mark, which is why I read the Mark passage at the beginning of of, uh, uh, worship service. And I've tried to distinguish some of the differences here by highlighting those phrases in the blue. Mark, which is at the bottom of the screen, Mark does not say anything about mom being along on the trip. He just focuses on the two brothers. Uh, James and John. And so that doesn't mean there's a conflict here. Mark is probably being much more, uh, much more efficient in his storytelling. He's not giving out extraneous details. Doesn't mean they weren't there. It's just that that's not his focus. Whereas Matthew includes a little more, uh, evidence. So he tells us that the mother of Zebedee's sons came to ask the question, but notice they are with her. So mom and the two boys come up, and mom begins with the question, and then Jesus understood that she's really the the, the proxy for the two boys, and she he looks at them and says, probably looks at them like, and you? And then they would have rephrased the question because they use a little bit different terminology. So he gets a question from mom, then he gets the same question from the two boys. But there's not a conflict here. It's just the way the two authors express the the episode. So in Mark, we're told that James and John come up, and when when Jesus looks at them and they rephrase the question, they say, Teacher, we want to do for you whatever we ask. Now, that seems a little arrogant, doesn't it? So apparently the tension among the disciples about who's going to be great has really increased by this point, and now they're going to do what, whatever they think to end the, the discussion, end the situation. So they want him to do whatever they ask, and he says, what do you want me to do? And they said, grant us that we may sit one on your right hand and the other on your left in your glory. Now, when she, Mom asked the question, She said, in your kingdom. 
So what we see here by the parallel is that glory is just another way to refer to kingdom, talking about the glorious kingdom of the Messiah. So it would be referred to both ways. So they're asking, uh, they're asking the same question. And they want the two positions of honor. The key position of honor is on the right. Now, there's something in Scripture that's, that's significant. When Jesus separates the sheep and the goats, he has the goats on the left and the sheep on the right. And there always seems to be this, this choice in Scripture that those who are on the correct side of the issue are on the right. Those who are on the wrong side of the issue are on the left. Now, you can apply that politically or any way you wish, but uh, there seems to be a scriptural basis for this sort of distinction. Anyhow... When, it, when there's going to be two positions of honor, one would be on the right, the other on the left, so that Jesus would be flanked by James and John. But Jesus clearly understood that, that mom was put up to this by the two boys because when he answers, he answers and he addresses the two boys. So I've sort of paraphrased this by adding in the brackets the fact that he is using a second-person plural to express his answer. He, when Jesus answered and said in Matthew 20, verse 22, he said, uh, Y'all do not know what y'all ask. So he's clearly talking to the two. And what we learn from the, uh, from the uh, account in both Matthew and Mark is that they have come on their own because in verse 24, we read, and when the ten heard of it. So they're just off. There's just Jesus and Salome and the two boys, and they're apart from the disciples. And later, the other disciples will hear about it, and they're going to get a bit upset that they have that, that there's this end run that's been attempted by James and John. So Jesus answered, and I put the, it's with these quotes and dialogue going on, I tried to clarify that a little bit by using italics. Jesus answered and said, y'all do not know what y'all ask and what are you, and then he asked the question, are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? They said to him, we are able. Now the reason I put the phrase in brackets and in purple is because it's not in all of our texts for the the, um, for Matthew. In fact, some of you, if you're using an NIV, an ESV, an NASB, or another modern translation, won't have this in your text. There may be in the margin. Uh, some of them may put it there and put it in brackets, and there'll be a comment in the margin that says, these are not in the oldest, and then they make a value judgment, and best manuscripts. Well, that's highly debated. Uh, there are some Manuscripts, these oldest manuscripts, basically boils down to four that come out of out of Egypt were found in that drier climate. It stands to reason in the drier climate of, of Egypt that certain documents would survive longer than they would in the Middle East or even in the northern Mediterranean area. Uh, but there there are there's a discrepancy in how people handle these differences. One view is called the majority text because the vast majority of manuscripts are um, uh, reflect that particular reading, and that's true in this case. The majority text has this in Matthew, and I think that's a correct reading. But even if it isn't in Matthew, it was in Mark. And here's a parallel for you to look at, and you will see that the phrases I've highlighted in purple there on the left are definitely stated there in the Mark 38 and 39 passage and uh, where he talks about being baptized uh, with the same baptism. So there's no textual variance in the Mark passage. But when we get to this word baptism, there's often a lot of misunderstanding about baptism. And the word that, that, that usually comes to people's mind when they hear Baptism is the word water, but water is not always present when you have baptisms in Scripture. In fact, we have to understand the meaning, the literal meaning of the word baptizo, as well as uh, its significance. The word baptizo in the Greek means to literally to dip something into something, to plunge it into something, to immerse it into something. Therefore, in the debate that has gone on through church history, sprinkling versus 
uh, immersion, the immersionists are correct. Uh, what happened in the early church was as they got away from a literal interpretation and due to various other factors, they opted for sprinkling rather than immersion. And then after uh, the early um, 4th century, when, when Constantine legitimized Christianity in the Roman Empire and it became the state religion, you had the identification of the state with Christianity up until you have the Protestant Reformation. And so entry into the state as a citizen was identified with entering into the church as a member of the church, which was through infant baptism. So you have this confusion where politics and religion come together and entering into this, the state was the same as entering into the church. So if somebody came along and said, wait a minute, wait a minute, you can't do baptism as infants. Baptism has nothing to do with citizenry. Baptism has to do with whether or not you believed that Jesus died on the cross for your sins. And these became known as Anna. Baptists. That word Anna means second baptism because most of the people had already been baptized as infants. And so in the Protestant Reformation, the Anabaptists came along and said two things. You've got to have separation of church and state, and there has to be believer's baptism, baptism by immersion. That's what makes a Baptist a Baptist. I used to love to have fun with my uh, a Baptist pastor and Baptist I knew where I did my uh, internship. Uh, when I was in seminary at a Baptist church in Irving, Texas, and I used to have fun and ask the question, what makes a Baptist a Baptist? And you get all kinds of a- answers, and a lot of them, would, if they were a little more knowledgeable, they'd say, well, Baptists are not a creedal people, which means we don't have a doctrinal statement, so anything goes. Uh, but there were others who were a little more knowledgeable, and I never had, and I used to I'd always tease the pastor about this. He had his doctorate and was teaching at Southwestern Baptist, and he never answered the question right. I have an unsaved Jewish urologist friend, and we were walking through a Baptist church in Mystic, Connecticut one day, and I said, you know what makes a Baptist a Baptist? He said, yeah, they believe in separation of church and state and baptism by immersion. Almost 100% of the Baptists I asked that of can't get it right. And here's an unsaved Jew who gets it right. So, But that's it. Uh, baptism, scripturally, is by immersion. But it's, it's not just the act of baptism that's significant. It's what it signifies. It's an action that signifies identification with someone or something, an action, a person, an object, or a new status in life. That's its significance. And in water baptism, it is teaching a spiritual truth of our identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection at the instant of our faith alone in Christ alone. Now, that's a difficult doctrine for people to understand positional truth and our identification with Christ. So the Lord has given us this very practical visual aid to teach that. Unfortunately, a lot of people don't ever get the teaching with the visual aid. But that's the significance is identification. So believer's baptism has to do with our identification with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. We have eight different baptisms in the New Testament. The first uh, three are ritual baptisms. The first is the baptism of Jesus. Often you'll hear people say, we want to follow Jesus in baptism. No one can do that. Jesus' baptism was a unique baptism that that entered him or inaugurated his public ministry. It was it was his public anointing as um, as prophet and priest in terms of his his ministry. And he was not following John's baptism. John's baptism was repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. But Jesus wasn't repenting of anything. So Jesus' baptism wasn't John's baptism, even though John performed the baptism. Then we have the baptism of John the Baptist, which was to identify the Jews of his day with his message presenting the kingdom uh, to Israel. The th- this also involved water. The third wet baptism and ritual baptism is believer's baptism, which I've already already described, which was a baptism by immersion based on a person's uh, faith in Jesus Christ as Savior. But then there are 
five dry baptisms. Also, they're called real baptisms as opposed to a ritual baptism. There's the baptism of Noah in 1 Peter 3, 20 to 21, where those who were on the ark were identified with Noah's faith. They survived in a state of dryness. The people who were not identified are the ones who got wet. Then we have the baptism of Moses. Water was also involved there in 1 Corinthians 10, uh, 2. Those who were identified with Moses went through the Red Sea, but they were dry. The ones who were not identified with Moses were the uh, uh, Pharaoh's army. They're the ones that got wet. Then we have the baptism of fire, which was mentioned by John the Baptist, that one would come after him who would baptize by means of fire and by means of judgment, and that refers to, uh, I mean, by means of fire and by means of the Holy Spirit, and the fire there refers to judgment, and that will come at the second coming. Then there's the baptism that's mentioned in this passage, which we need to clarify, called the baptism of the cup. Sometimes it's called the baptism of the cross, which is terminology I've used in the past, but having gone through this passage, I realize that is erroneous terminology. Uh, it is because this baptism is not unique to Jesus, and we'll see this in just a minute. And then the fifth is the baptism by means of God the Holy Spirit, which is the distinguishing character of the church age. It began on the day of Pentecost, and there will be no baptism by the Holy Spirit once the church is taken to be with the Lord at the rapture. The concept that we have here in the cup is not the cup itself, but what's in the cup. And Jesus isn't talking about the fact that he's going to be immersed in the cup or sprinkled in the cup or anything like that, but it's focusing on the content of the cup. And the cup, as a metaphor, is used many times in the Old Testament. It's also used in the book of Revelation. And most commonly, it is used to refer to judgment. That which is poured out of the cup is God's judgment on uh, either personal individual discipline or divine judgment on nations and on Israel. But it's also used to refer to blessing. We have references to the cup of blessing. So the cup can be either positive in terms of blessing or negative in terms of judgment, and so we have to look at the contents to see what it's talking about. Jesus used it several times uh, along with this passage to talk about what was going to take place uh, at the cross. In John 18:11, he prayed at the Garden of Gethsemane. He's at the Garden of Gethsemane. Peter has just chopped the ear off of Malchus, the servant of the high priest. Uh, Jesus put the ear back on and healed it, and then he told Peter to put away his sword. And said, then he said, "Shall I drink? Shall I not drink the cup which my Father has given me?" Now, what happens is a lot of us, because we know what's going to happen. He's going to go to the cross that we said what's in the cup is the cross. But we have a problem there because of what's said here. What is talking about in the cup is it's the cup of suffering in a more generic sense, not as precise as the cross. Matthew 26, 39, he prays, Father, let this cup pass from me. Matthew 26:42 he prays to the father if this cup cannot pass away from me unless i drink it which means to experience the 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 judgment the suffering uh Mark 14:36 he prays to the father take this cup away from me Luke 22:42 uh father if it's your will take this cup uh, away from me so let's look at at this passage in Matthew 21 Actually, I think I just have to back up a little bit, and I can put this all on the screen for us. There we go. In Matthew 22 and 23, Jesus says, there we go. Jesus says, you all do not know what you're asking. You have no clue. You think you do, but you don't. Remember, they've never accepted or understood or been able to process his statements like the one he just made in verses 18 and 19, that he is going to be betrayed by the chief priests and the scribes, that he'll be condemned to death, delivered to the Gentiles to mock and discourage and to crucify, and he'll rise on the third day. They never were able to process that. 
So he's telling them that they just don't understand it, and the Greek verb that's used for know here is oida, which indicates a more deep uh, internal knowledge. He says, you just don't get it. He says, are you able to drink the cup that I am about to drink? And that's just imagery for, for participating in the contents of the cup, where it becomes part, part of him, much like in the Lord's table when we drink the cup. Drinking is taking something in, making it a part of us. It's a picture of trusting Christ as Savior. But then he says, are you able to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with? See, what he's indicating by that question is that they can be baptized with the same baptism that he's baptized with. So if the baptism by the cup is as narrow as it's often taught as the cross, they're not going to the cross. Now, Ten of the eleven are going to die for the gospel, but they won't all die by crucifixion. Some will be uh, have their heads cut off, head cut off. Some will be uh, killed in other ways, but John will survive. So not all of the disciples are going to are going to die. So so baptism with the cup can't be as narrow as the cross because they're going to be baptized with it also. And that's what he says in verse 23, you will indeed drink my cup. You're going to drink the same cup that I drink. So if drinking the same cup that Jesus drinks, if the cup is the cross, then they're not going to be doing that. So it's, it can't be that narrow. And then he says, and be baptized, you will be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized with. That means we all as believers can be baptized with the cup if we understand the cup correctly. And the question is, the same question for them, are you able to be baptized with the, with the baptism Jesus was baptized with? And what does that describe? That describes the suffering, unjust suffering, undeserved suffering, that may be part of our spiritual life. So let me show how Peter learned this lesson. The conclusion that we see from Matthew is since Matthew and Mark both clearly state that the, clearly state that Jesus said that the disciples would both drink the same cup and be baptized with the same baptism, the imagery cannot be narrowed to the cross alone because only Jesus goes to the cross like that. To be baptized with the cup and to drink the cup meant that, like Jesus the disciples will also encounter unjust and undeserved suffering because of their faith in Christ. Are we willing to walk through that? Now, turn with me to 1 Peter. Those of you who have been coming to Bible class and are listening online to 1 Peter chapter 1 clearly know that Peter is being written to a group of Messianic Jews who are going through undeserved suffering, and they are facing that at every turn, and that Peter is writing this to tell them how to handle it, how to face it on the on divine resources, and to handle that unjust suffering. And those principles apply down through the ages that the only way we can handle the sufferings, the vicissitudes, the challenges of life, and especially those that come because we are believers, we can only do that in the power of God the Holy Spirit and on the basis of God's Word uh, together. So just see how the sufferings of Christ are used as the pattern for this in 1 Peter. In 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 11, Peter says, referring to the Old Testament prophets, that they were searching what or what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who was in them was indicating when he testified beforehand the suffering of Christ and the glories that would follow. Jesus is teaching that if you really want to have glory in the kingdom, then you have to be willing to drink from the same cup he drinks from and be baptized with the same baptism. You have to be willing to suffer for with Christ. And, and, and that's what Paul says in Romans chapter 8, that this also leads to being joint heirs of Christ. We'll look at this next week. 1 Peter 2.19, turn over one page in most of your Bibles, to 1 Peter 2.19. And there we see this same pattern that is, that is to characterize the believer. 
There, Peter is talking about suffering, and I want to read the lead into this, which is verses 19 and 20, before we look at the specifics of the example. He begins by saying, this is commendable, that is, suffering unjustly. This is commendable if because of conscience toward God, that is, because you are doing that which is right before God, Conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongly. Notice the broad category here. It's not the cross, that narrow. It's the broad category of just unjust, undeserved suffering. He then says in verse 20, For what credit is it when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently. But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, that is commendable before God. What's interesting is the word that's translated commendable in the the, uh, New King James is the word grace. This is what it means to be grace-oriented, to suffer patiently, to endure, endure unjust suffering patiently. He then goes on to say, For to this you were called, that's every believer, to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example. Notice the parallel is unjust suffering, not the specific kind of suffering on the cross. Christ suffered for us, leaving us an example. He's the pattern. He's the one who who was willing to uh, leave heaven to enter into human history, to take on humanity and the role of a doulos, a servant, a slave, in order to humble himself by obedience and going to the cross. So Peter goes on to say, he, he, it was undeserved. He committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. This is a quotation from Isaiah 53. Who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously. Now, the normal response that people have is that when they are reviled, they snap back, they, they attack, they use hand gestures or whatever to, to uh, make their point known. When they suffer, they threaten, they do all of these things, but that's not what you do if you're oriented to grace. If you have divine viewpoint, you don't revile when you're reviled, you don't uh, threaten when you suffer, but you commit yourself to God who will eventually make all things right. And the pattern is Jesus, verse 24, who bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sin, might live for righteousness. And then turn over another page to 1 Peter 3.13. 1 Peter 3.13, and we have Christ being used in the same pattern. It says, And who is he who will harm you if you being followers of what is good? Again, this dealing with unjust suffering. And Peter says, But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. So that's the context. And then the illustration comes in verses 16 and 17, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, when they blame Christians for all the problems, and when they are hostile, when they want to throw us in jail, all the persecution that might come, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed, for it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for doing good than doing evil. And then we have the example. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Christ is the example of suffering. That's the point of taking the cup, uh, drinking that cup, and being baptized with the baptism he's baptized with. 1 Peter 4 brings it up again. Therefore, since Christ suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same thinking, the same thoughts. For he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. And then skipping down to verse 12, Beloved, do not think it strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened to you, but rejoice to the extent that you partake of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory is revealed, you may also be glad with exceeding joy. Now, we'll come back to this next time when I talk about rewards and judgment, because those who suffer with Christ are promised that they will be joint heirs with Christ. And that's distinct from being an heir of God, and we'll look at this next time. So the point here that Jesus is making is for there to be any honor or glory in the kingdom, 
then we have to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. We have a wonderful promise that most people don't ever memorize in 2 Timothy 3.12. This is one of those positive things you never hear in a gospel presentation. Yes, Paul says, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. Doesn't that make you feel warm and fuzzy? That's why this isn't a church of three or 4,000 people, is because we teach the truth, and the truth is not always a warm fuzzy. Now back to Matthew chapter 20. Jesus finishes this up, or the situation finishes up. When the ten hear about this, they're greatly displeased with the two brothers, verse 24. And Jesus called them to himself, and he gave them a little lesson in leadership. He said, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lorded over them. That's human viewpoint leadership. And those who are great exercise authority over them. Yet, contrast, it shall not be so among you. This is the teaching point. Whoever desires to be great among you, let him be your servant. Diakonos. That's the point of Christian leadership. Parents, you exercise that leadership by being servants to your kids because you need to teach them how to live a godly life. And that takes time, it takes energy, it takes creativity, and often that runs counter to spending your time pursuing your own career. It is putting your kids first over your own uh, ambitions and your own career. It affects each of us individually, being leaders in the local church, being leaders in whatever arena we're in. It focuses on not seeking status or being somebody, but on being a servant first and foremost of the Lord and carrying out the mission that he has given us to make disciples. Next time, I want to come back and wrap this up and put this within the context of what the Scripture teaches about rewards and judgments. Because this is what this whole passage is a part of, that greater doctrine of rewards and judgments, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to come together to study your word, to be reminded that as believers in Jesus Christ, we are to think differently, we are to live differently. We are not to imitate the world, we are not to be pressed into the mold of the world, but we are to be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We are to follow the pattern of leadership exhibited by the great, greatest leader in all of human history, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom, a payment for many. Father, we pray that if there's anyone here this morning that has never trusted in Christ as Savior, is unsure of their eternal destiny and uncertain of their salvation, that this would be the opportunity for them to trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. It's a free gift. We do nothing to earn it or deserve it. We simply trust that Jesus died on the cross for our sins. We believe what the Bible says, that he is the one who died for our sins, was buried and rose the third day, that he is our Savior. The instant we believe in him, we are given his righteousness. We are declared just. We are given new life in him. We are regenerate. We have eternal life. Father, for those of us who are saved, the challenge is to grow and mature, to be disciples, to follow Jesus. Not all will do this. Not all have the spiritual courage. Some just say, okay, I'll do it a little bit, but then as we grow and mature, we take the challenge and we grow more and we grow more. Real life comes from following the Lord Jesus Christ. And, Father, we pray that we might all have the strength, the courage to follow the Lord. And, Father, we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.